the city has for a very long time had essentially a police force of roughly the same size. And the city's population had been growing slowly, but the sense that there wasn't a, a critical sense that we were underserved. But in the last couple of years, as population growth has taken off, and that's not just the resident population, you have to realize that in the middle of the business day, the city's population, including the workers, is very large. Um, a lot of folks obviously commute in. Bottom line, the number of, of calls to 911 and the number of, of issues have, incidents have, have risen, and there is suddenly a real pressure about increasing the number of police officers. That's the voice of the director of Seattle's city budget office, Ben Noble, who you will hear more from in a future episode. In today's episode of the Seattle Growth Podcast, we look into Seattle's emergency services and how they are affected by Seattle's growth. Today's episode features in-depth interviews with the chief of the fire department, Harold Scoggins, and the Chief Operating Officer of the Seattle Police Department, Brian Maxey. Through these interviews, you will learn how the city's first responders' response times are changing as the city grows, and what is being done to prepare for further growth to make sure that the citizens of Seattle have reliable access to emergency services. This is the Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and if you've been listening so far, you know we are in the midst of a 13-episode journey into the minds of residents, businesses, and city leaders about how Seattle's growth affects their lives. From a man on the street to the mayor of Seattle, I've conducted over 100 in-depth interviews so you could better understand how your fellow community members react to important issues facing us all. Previously on the Seattle Growth Podcast, you heard from Chris DeVore, chair of Seattle's Economic Development Commission and founding partner, at Founders Co-op. We, we want to have a conversation about what is the kind of city we all want to live in, what makes cities great, and how do we, across sectoral lines, across economic lines, across you know ge- geographic, race, gender, etc., how, how do we collaborate and communicate to develop a shared vision of the city we want to live in and then work together to enact that future? You heard from Steve Smith. I haven't seen the wages go up. What I've seen is more competition, is more people doing what I do to, to take, take in the influx of, uh, of uh, new people coming to Seattle. Yeah, not, not only that, I can't even live in, I can't even afford to live in the place where I build, build for people anymore. You heard from City Council Member Shama Sawant. Unless we want Seattle to be a homogeneous city made of extremely wealthy people, with really having lost its culture and its soul, then we have a huge thing to fight for. And in the last episode, we explored ideas for how to build Seattle's density. You heard from University of Washington architecture professor Rob Pena. You know, there's no doubt that there's efficiency by collecting and living in more apartment-like or connected house sort of situations, you know. And it's efficient because it reduces the surface-to-volume ratio, you know, the amount of exposure you have to the environment, susceptibility to heat loss or heat gain. Um, You use fewer materials. You heard from land-use planner Teresa Greer. Low-density backyard cottage. I'm probably going to be get one, maybe two people there, while the same effort, albeit a little bit more intense. I'm still going to have trucks driving to and from the site for excavation. I'm still going to have construction workers driving to and from for construction work. It makes more sense if I'm going to go to that effort to put that into a high-density development. And you heard Seattle City Council member Mike O'Brien discuss his proposed legislation intended to spur more backyard cottage construction in single-family residential neighborhoods. 
So by doing it this way, I think we still get the benefit of perhaps tripling the density, but without that construction pressure and price pressure that we see when outside developers and investors come in. That's the hope. There are a variety of ideas for how and where to put more people in Seattle. In today's episode, we look at the effects of a greater population on the city's emergency services. My first interview is with the chief of the fire department, Harold Scoggins. I'm here with the chief of the Seattle Fire Department, Harold Scoggins. Harold, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. And most importantly, thank you very much for your service to the people of Seattle. Uh, Much appreciated. So what I'd like to get a sense of uh, your perspectives on growth and resources that that you need to to manage them. Uh, As the population has grown, have you seen any changes with respect to the calls for emergency services? Um, You know, if we look historically not just here in Seattle, but around the country as population changes, the call load has been rising. But there's other factors outside of just the pure population growth that I believe are affecting our rising call load. Um, One, I think across the nation related to um, how Fire and EMS has become a part of the healthcare system. Um, so we're called for many, many responses where 20 or 30 years ago we weren't called for. And I think that's playing also a significant part in our rising call load. And so with this rising call load, have you seen any difference in the last five years with respect to response times? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're ticking up. They're not ticking up at a dramatic pace, um, but it, it is becoming a concern. You know, if there's more people moving on the streets each day and more calls coming in in, in, in one particular district, then obviously it's going to take longer for those other resources on those outlying districts to get in there and be that backfill behind them. And what does that do? And then that leaves the district behind them a little bit vacant. So that's some of the things that we watch and we pay attention to. And we're really trying to figure that out right now to see what the challenges are and then try to do a little projecting of what they may be in the future. So we've got a lot of people moving in, and there's various ideas as to where to build that density. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you speak to if there's more density on residential streets versus arterials? How does that affect Mm -hmm. the way you respond to emergencies? Well, I can't speak to if there should be more density in one place or another. That's another profession, and for other people to figure that one out. Um, but I can speak to that there can be challenges, obviously, as if any area becomes more densely populated, that slows down our travel time on the streets. Um, it could create a few challenges on, um, you know, even going down some of the streets in the residential area. But I do not believe that that's a new thing. Um, when you look around older cities across America, what you see are tighter streets. And Seattle is no different um, than any other older city in America when the neighborhoods were established. The streets were a bit tighter. Now, when we have cars parked on both sides of those streets, obviously we take our time getting down those streets today as we probably did 20 years ago. Um, So that probably hasn't changed that much. Um, We have our main arterials that we really try to focus on uh, when we're navigating our way around the community and our main arterials will continue to be our primary response routes until we need to dive off into the neighborhoods or the different districts around the city. Can you tell me about the equipment that you use on these residential streets that are about 25 feet wide? Uh, Is that equipment any different than you use uh, serving an apartment building? 
No, it's not. Um, our fire engines are, you know, basically about 30 feet long, about 10 feet wide. Um, and those are the same fire engines that we'll take in the residential neighborhoods versus um, the downtown districts. And our ladder trucks, you know, they're, they're um, you know, probably 50 feet long and the width is the same. Our ambulances are a little shorter, but, and the width is a little a little narrower, but we take those same vehicles all around the city and, and we navigate around the city as we need to. And if we have tight corners, we would do just like you and I would do. We slow down and we navigate the corner and we try to take care of business. Um, generally, our firefighters, they get there um, and they start problem solving once they get there. If we have to stop short, we carry a lot of hose on our engine so we can lay a line and we can pull hand line. So if we have to carry a hand line, you know, two to 300 feet, we can do that. If we have to go back and grab a hydrant four or 500 feet, we can do that. So it allows us the ability to be nimble and flexible as we always have. As we uh, become more densely populated, how does that affect your planning in terms of the equipment you need and the facilities you might need? You know, as the area becomes more populated, we, we look at it on a few different fronts. We know when more people come in to the region, we have the potential to have more fire and EMS calls because there are just more people in the area. But we really try to engineer um, safety into some of these new buildings that are being built, and that's really important for everyone to know. Uh, many times as new buildings are built, they're safer than the buildings that came down or they're safer than whatever it was that was in that previous space. You know, our Fire Prevention Bureau, our Fire Marshal's Office works hard on ensuring the safety of those who live here, who work here, and who visit here. And you, you engineer a lot of things. And many times when these buildings are built, they have the latest and greatest in the fire safety systems, whether they're alarm systems or sprinkler systems or egress, ac access and egress, ins and outs of the building, and um, all the tools that we need attached to all of those buildings to actually make them a little bit safer. Um, but what we find sometimes is because there are more people and uh, we have done a great job in advertising, you know, call 911 when you have a problem, um, people do that. And when there are more people, more people are going to do that. Um, so it's kind of our own fault in some ways, but, you know, we're, we're here to serve the community. And um, if there are more calls, um, we'll take the necessary steps and, and have the right conversations with our, um, with our mayor and our city leaders to let them know. Um, but here inside the house, we're working hard on strategizing on how we attack those problems inside the house also. Are you able to handle more density with the current fire stations that we have? It depends. Um, and that's an answer that you'll probably hear from me from time to time um, be, because it, it does depend. You know, as I mentioned earlier, as we're engineering these new um, residential and commercial high-rises and we're engineering these other structures around the city, you know, if one of them burns, it's important for us to have our enough fire pumps to give us the um, volume needed to put out a room and contents fire or a full floor of a high-rise fire. So it depends on where our stations are strategically located, how busy these areas are strategically, and the type of tools and equipment that we may carry. So it would depend on you know what it looks like. If we build out an area that was um, all single-family residences to all high-rises and our stations may be um, spread apart a bit more, 
then generally we may not have the volume we need in that local engine company to be able to pump the gallons per minute to put on a large major fire. So that could come into play. If we have an area that has turned in from, from a commercial district to a total residential district, and now we're responding to a, no, a large number of EMS calls in that area, then we may need another ambulance or another aid car. So it depends mean, means what, what does that area turn into? Sometimes changes can happen quickly. How long is your lead time to be able to implement the, these changes in response? You know, it, it, it depends. And change doesn't happen that quickly. Um, you know, when a building is built, it goes through a lot, of, a lot of phases along the way. And usually there are a lot of people that know about it. And then it starts to populate itself. And then we start to see that gradual uptick of responses or not. So we get to watch that unfold. But if we needed to put a new resource in service, you know, we, we have a pool of people that work every day. And if we added another resource, if we have 209 people on duty today and we added an aid car, well, that means we're going to have 211 people on duty. Or if we add a medical a medic unit, that means we'll have two more people at 211. Another engine or another ladder would be 213. So in the big picture of things, um, initially to get us up to speed, could we hire back with overtime until we beefed up our staffing enough to immediately do it? Absolutely. Um, but it all goes through processes because hopefully we would see that coming. Hopefully we would be able to uh, make the case in front of the mayor and the council and hopefully we would get an approval if those things were needed. And then we would have a, um, um, a, a, landing, a landing, a runway to land that plane over a period of time to order to make that happen. So I think we will be well equipped to make those adjustments if they're needed. And the major source of the financial resources that you need, do you mind talking about where the money comes from and what, what options you have available if it doesn't come from the sources, do you hope so? Well, we don't have many options. Um, we have the city's general fund um, where those the taxes are collected, whether they're the sales taxes or the property taxes. And then we have the EMS levy that supports our EMS resources that are out there. So we don't have a, a, a wide range of sources that come in to support our budget, um, but we have significant resources and the community has made public safety a priority and, and, and we know the value and that we believe that the community sees the value in what we do and we believe that those examples happen each and every day. You may not see them each and every day, but our firefighters out in the field who do a great job, they see it each and every day. How has the economic growth changed your ability to get those heroes uh, on staff? You know, it, it, it hasn't changed much. Um, a lot of those, res all, those resources come to the city and to the budget and finance offices. And, you know, we put forward on what our needs are annually or biannually. And those, those, those needs are met through our budget and through the good times, those needs are met. And through the bad times, those needs are met. And, and so sometimes it's more difficult and sometimes it's not as difficult. Obviously, as as growth kicks up, you would expect that it's not as difficult, um, but as, as a downturn happened, it became very difficult all around the nation to fund a lot of different things. Um, but the city committed to keeping a lot of resources on the street. So it ebbs and flows like in anything else, you know, in our home finances. You know, if, if we have any extras, hopefully we're saving for that rainy day. Yeah. And when we don't have extras and things go down, we hope we have saved for that rainy day. So you can draw upon 
on that to get you through. Um, and that's kind of the approach I believe that the city takes in many ways. And then so given the, the pool of resources that you have, mm-hmm. your ability to attract talent uh, mm-hmm. or the, the hard workers, mm-hmm. um, given the salary constraints mm-hmm. and the, the cost of living and everything here, mm-hmm. have you seen any challenges we, we have all the same challenges as everyone else, and sometimes on the surface it may not look like it. Um, here's what I mean by that. We gave a firefighter exam last November, and for that exam we had over 7,000 people turn in applications. We had about close to 3,400 actually show up. Um, and then over the last several months we've been walking through that process of um, getting it down to that first group that we're going to be hiring this August, that first group of 30. So when you look on, on the outside looking at 7,000 applicants, you're not really having that big a problem. Well, we have different challenges. You know, we're, we're trying to build a fire department that reflects the, the diversity here in the community, whether it's uh, gender or people of color. And um, so we're out recruiting. And, and here's another unselfish plug that if you have an interest in the Seattle Fire Department, please feel free. It's a, it's a great career. Um, at the end of 30 years, you will be looking back and you'll say, wow. I know I made a good choice because I feel really good about what I'm doing. You can go to our website. You can call our headquarters. Heck, you can even shoot me an email directly, and I'll make sure we get back to you so we can talk to you about all the good opportunities there are here in the Seattle Fire Department. Can you summarize what the biggest challenge for you is regarding uh, population growth here in Mm -hmm. Seattle? You know, I think the biggest challenge for us, as you mentioned a couple of times, is our our rising call load. Um, But I'm not 100% sure that it's only tied to our population growth. So what we put together is what's called a low acuity task force um, that's really focusing on those non-emergent calls. For example, last year we had approximately over 92,000 responses. Over 77,000 of those responses were EMS related. Now a large group of those calls um, would be considered low acuity um, or non-emergent type 911 responses. Um, What does that mean? Well, if there's someone sleep on the sidewalk and someone's driving down the street and um, citizens trying to do the right thing, well, they call 911 and say someone's down on the sidewalk. Well, who always comes? The fire department. We always come. There's no middle of the road. But sometimes we get there and it's just the person sleeping on the sidewalk because no one actually shook them and said, hey, are you asleep? You know, when you learn um, CPR, the first thing we do is shake them. Hey, hey, are you okay? It's that concept. But you can't do that from driving down the street. So our low acuity task force is going to start to look at that problem. Um, Later on in the year, we're going to be deploying electronic health care reports. So we have good data on the patients. And then in 2017, we hope to better start to understand the problem. um, And and we hope we can start to plateau some of those non-emergent calls because that is a big part of our call load and I think if we can tackle that we can start to slow down that rise and then look for those other areas that we need to attack. If you could get out a message to the people of Seattle how they could make your life easier as we've got this greater call load what would you say? Well, there's a few things. Um, One of the things I I can say is is learn how to help yourself. So when we have that big disaster, the reality is um, we only have so many resources here in the city of Seattle, and we know we are connected by a series of bridges over waterways and land masses and things like that. So have a plan to help yourself. That's going to be a big one. And that can include everything from becoming um, a cert responder or just learning CPR and then figure out how you're going to help your neighbors. And then one of the things I I can say is educate your family. Have a disaster action plan. So if something goes wrong in your individual home, you know, 
it's hard to say don't worry about the, the, the room and contents that are inside that home, but make sure your family's okay. But have a plan so you can get everybody outside of that house and meet at the tree or meet down the block. So you know the worst thing in the li- in your life has just happened, but now i got a plan for my family in case a disaster happens. And then number three would be to continue to support Seattle Fire Department as the community has done so well over the years. We appreciate the support that we receive from the community, and, and we all know we're here for a reason. We're here to serve this community. We're proud to do that, and we're excited about it each and every day. Chief, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Really appreciate the opportunity to meet you here. All right. Thank you. Having heard from the chief of the fire department, I next sat down with the chief operating officer of the Seattle Police Department to better understand how Seattle's increasing population and economic growth affects how the department protects and serves the public. I am at the Seattle Police Department headquarters with Brian Maxey. Brian is the chief operating officer of the Seattle Police Department. Brian, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Why don't we just start by you telling me just a little bit about the, the role of the chief operating officer? Well, the role of the chief operating officer is an impossible role. Its bandwidth is completely outside of one human being's ability to to manage. It includes uh, IT, human resources, uh, public affairs, training and compliance, professional standards, uh, facilities, finance, budget, administration, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Uh, Fortunately, we've got a lot of very good people at the director level that are responsible for their individual sections, and we've worked very, very hard to develop those areas. When Chief Gautul came in in 2014, for example, the human resources director was was a captain. It was a sworn position, and she made the uh, change uh, pretty quickly to civilianize that, to bring in people with the professional experience to manage uh, the sections of that they were responsible for. It's not to say the sworn folks weren't doing a good job, it's just there are certain positions, HR, IT, that having a civilian person that is trained and developed in that specific area is uh, far more beneficial to the operations of the department. So let's talk HR for a second. Uh, What is the size of the police force uh, and how has that changed in the last five years? When you say the police force, do you mean the sworn police force? Yeah, the sworn officers. Yeah, so we're we're to Approximately 1,350 officers of all ranks uh, across the department. It has not changed hugely since 2011. In 2011, there were uh, just under 1,300 or 1,298 officers, so about a net add of 52. Uh, When you look at hiring in police departments, there is a, a lot of attrition. So many go out the door as many are coming in. So to get to a net of 52 actually requires quite a lot of uh, hiring. I think last year we had attrition of about 150 officers leaving. So to get to the net add of 30, I believe, uh, give or take, uh, last year required a hiring of 180 officers. So we are constantly hiring and constantly trying to bring in the best recruits we can. At the same time, we're also uh, very focused at increasing the diversity. And I know in 2015, 30% of the new hires were uh, people of color, which w- is is very high in law enforcement, so we're very proud of that achievement. How do you see the sworn officer count going in the next five years? In the next five years, it's, it's only going up. Initially, when the mayor came in, uh, Mayor Murray said he he wanted us to hire an additional 100 officers net. He's increased that commitment to 200 officers. Uh, that means in by 2019, uh, we should be looking at around 1,521 officers. 
Uh, we're actually ahead of our hiring process right now. Uh, we're doing very well to meet these goals. And we're also very encouraged by the uh, level of recruit that we're seeing uh, coming into the department. And, and has the economic growth here in Seattle affected your ability to recruit sworn officers? I don't know that we've found any tie between the economic situation here and um, our ability to recruit officers. We look statewide. We look nationally. Uh, we're pulling from, from a wide range of offices, either lateral or new recruits, to fill. So it's not necessarily a Seattle-focused uh, recruiting effort. And then speaking of Seattle, do you know how many officers, sworn officers, live in the city of Seattle? I know how many of our employees live in Seattle. I don't have it broken down by officer or civilian, but uh, almost 25% of our employees live within the city of Seattle. Do you have any <laughs> indications as to why the other 74% has chosen to live outside the city? I, I have anecdotal uh, information on that. I mean, just talking to officers, I've, I've heard repeatedly we can't afford to, to live in Seattle. They're getting priced out of the community. What is the median salary of police officers? The median salary, and this would exclude sergeants, uh, lieutenants, and captains, and, and assistant chiefs, just at the police officer rank is, is about $98,000. Now, starting salary for police officer is just under seventy. So what this $98,000 median is telling me, and this is confirmed by our HR records, is that uh, we have a lot of senior police officers. And when I say senior, I mean they've been on the force for a long time. And... At this point, a third of our uh, force is uh, retirement eligible. So as we are looking to increase the net uh, uh, number of officers over the next few years, keeping an eye on attrition and how many officers are actually leaving the department is really going to be critical for us. Do you see any challenges to the police department of having a large proportion of the officers and employees living outside of the city that they're protecting and serving? Certainly, I think it would be ideal if more of our officers lived in the communities they served and were able to build those relationships. That being said, what's pretty universally true is that when you're called uh, to help someone in the community, whether it's criminal or crisis, you're not encountering that person at their finest moment. And it can cause uh, friction in communities when the officers are encountering the people they've arrested or seen in a drug crisis or seen having a mental health break uh, in their uh, you know, civilian capacity. So there are pros and cons. Essentially what we're trying to do through our training is, is increase thoughtful policing and how uh, police officers interact with whomever they encounter with, with respect and dignity and try to get to a, a good resolution of whatever the problem is. So let's talk uh, what these police officers are, are able to do here in Seattle. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the response time? It's a pretty nuanced question, and uh, historically I think uh, we've done a poor job of giving accurate information about what the response times are. Uh, across the country, response times are generally thrown out as a citywide average. Citywide average really is an unhelpful number because I'll tell you, in Seattle right now, it's, it's approximately nine minutes is the actual average from the time an officer is dispatched to the time are on scene. Um, but that doesn't tell you what your individual experience might be when you call 911. And when you, when you talk about emergency calls, I'm referring to priority ones, the, the most important calls. Um, 
it really would depend on where you live in the city for a variety of factors. For example, uh, East Precinct is our smallest precinct. It's uh, geographically very small. There are good travel routes uh, within Capitol Hill and, and the rest of the East Precinct for officers to get to where they need to get quickly. Our response time there hovers somewhere around five to six minutes on average. Um, you look at uh, other areas of the city, particularly in North um, and down in, in Ballard, um, we're seeing that the response times are creeping up well over 10 minutes, um, and in some cases even as high as 14 minute averages, something we're working on very hard. Uh, there are there's a wide variety of dynamics that influence this. You know, geography, I mean, North, precinct itself is such a dense large geographic area it's actually if taken by itself is one of the larger cities in the state uh, even without the rest of the city attached to it um, you also have uh, geographic barriers like getting down into Ballard for example is difficult you have to take 3rd Avenue or 15th or come down 46th uh, just due to um, you know, the physical restraints other factors are, are creating impacts on our ability to deploy quickly in emergency circumstances. Certainly, uh, traffic density is an issue. Um, just as the growth in the city increases and the traffic density gets, uh, gets tighter, it is harder for emergency vehicles to move about. I don't have any strong data on this to, to point to the specific impact of this, but certainly anecdotally, we, we're aware of greater difficulty navigating the city. Additionally, because of our consent decree, we have an increase in the amount of paperwork and the amount of administrative time officers need. While it, that time itself is not hugely significant, what it does require is officers going back to the precinct to do their paperwork. This means when the emergency dispatch call comes, quite frequently officers are, dis are dispatching from the precinct. Uh, in, in North, for example, because I'm looking at the at the chart right behind you, um, that would require them from coming from a northern central location down to some of the um, lower or southern or eastern areas of uh, the precinct. That slows down response times, where they're deploying from. When you look at uh, deployment models and deployment strategies, they assume that officers are deploying from within their sector and beat. And that's how you deploy and anticipate what your time should be. If that's not happening, if they're deploying from another location, we're, it requires a reconsideration of how you're deploying. To solve that problem, we definitely need more officers, hence the increase over the next few years. Uh, we also need to come up with some administrative efficiencies, and it, reducing that uh, paperwork time with better IT systems, with smarter ways of completing paperwork, you know, eliminating redundancies, that will help dramatically. The other thing we're doing is we're putting in administrative substations. These are not public-facing precincts. These are simply secure locations for officers to do their paperwork and stay within their sector and beat uh, so that they can deploy more locally than from the precinct. Going back to those response times, have you seen any areas in particular that have gotten worse response times over the last five years? Yes, yeah, certainly. You know, you go... Uh, sector by sector throughout the city and some have worse response times, some have better. Certainly uh, Ballard has been an issue down in Boy 1, Boy 2, and Boy 3. Uh, that's I think the highest response times in the city that are hovering you know, well over 10 minutes. And do you have a, a, a recollection of what it was five years ago or so like in terms of trends? 
Well, this is, you know, earlier I said that I think we've done a pretty poor job historically of, of capturing and presenting this information. We spoke before about a citywide average, and for years and years and years, we were saying we were meeting a seven-minute uh, average citywide. And that was true from a certain perspective, but what that model required was truncating the data set and cutting out the outliers and also adding in what are called on views. So if an officer actually witnesses uh, criminal activity and responds to it, that was counted as, as part of the response time. We're no longer doing that because if you count on views, it just drops a bunch of zeros into your data and certainly brings down the number. And you know, let me stress, if we use that same model, we're still meeting that seven minute standard that we, we have been uh, talking to for years. And from one perspective, it is a valid measure of how well your officers are performing, but it didn't meet with public expectations of how long does it take when I pick up the phone and call 911 until I see an officer. So right now, that's nine minutes citywide, and then it would depend on your sector as to what the actual customer experience is. And then just in terms of trends, are there any areas in particular that are trending one direction or another? Well, one thing I do want to uh, talk about in terms of what impacts the response times is the, is the calls for service. And what we have noticed is with the increased density sitting citywide, our calls for service are climbing dramatically. When you look at the total 911 calls uh, by precinct, we're noticing a, a large increase. All right, for example, in 2010 in West Precinct, we received about 55,000 911 calls. That increased by 2015 up to almost 70,000. Um, every single precinct, we've seen a significant uptick in the, in the number of, of total 911 calls. This is also uh, very dramatic when you look at the priority one calls, the most serious. We've had the greatest increase in those citywide. Um, the number of calls obviously drives how, um, how fast we can get there because if we're responding to more, we, these calls can back up. Um, that being said, I think we're doing a pretty good job at responding to the priority ones, the most serious. In terms of crime, uh, crime has not gone up even uh, despite the uh, drastic increases in, um, in population. Particularly in the uh, person crime, the violent crime, that rate has either been steady or has been dropping. Um, the area we have seen major growth, though, is in, is in car prowls. If you took car prowls out of our crime data, we would have a uh, very dramatic overall uh, citywide drop in, in crime. You add in car prowls, and we're actually showing a slight increase. So it's all property crime. Um, the you know, thing about car prowls, especially when you talk about officer efficiency and deployments, is we get calls, 911 calls, my car's been broken into. If you actually look at the data, there's a huge spike between 7 and 9 a.m. when people are waking up and realizing this. And many people really, really want an officer to respond to their car. And certainly we understand and respect the uh, desire to have uh, that individualized attention. Uh, that being said, uh, Assistant Chief uh, Steve Wilski, who runs patrol operations, has looked very critically at how successful we are when we go to a scene and try to collect evidence to solve that individual crime when it's a car prowl. And he's finding that we, in fewer than 2% of the cases, do we actually get any usable evidence. So essentially what's happening is an officer is being dispatched 
to a car prowl call, which is a relatively low, I think it's a priority three in, in most cases, um, call, and spending the time and energy to take a report. Uh, that report could be given over the telephone, uh, it can be given uh, our online reporting, and we're actually really encouraging people to use those resources rather than insist upon an officer. Uh, there's some uh, service expectations management that we really need to do because if you have a car problem and you ask for an officer to come to you, you really can't expect that it is going to take a long time because we have to prioritize all of the other uh, far more urgent calls to, to go to before we're going to get to you. So you may, you may be waiting for eight hours. And we are looking into different ways of providing that service. But I think the best way, what we would really encourage is for people to uh, go online um, and fill out their report. Um, and quite honestly, they're the best reporter of what happened and, and the information they have. There's no point in running this through an officer and having you know, misinformation or any confusion about what happened. Uh, and to really, to the point though, car prowls are, they're not solved by an officer going out and looking at a car that's been broken into. It's really solved by investigations, looking at the prolific offenders, figuring out what the patterns are in the areas, and working it from you know who's actually committing these crimes rather than trying to solve each individual one. We do need to know that it happened. We need to know where it happened. There's a lot of important information that goes into our investigations. But overall, I think we can provide better service for uh, citizens of Seattle by um, not dispatching officers to those type of calls and relying on investigations to solve it. As the community has grown, so we've got more population density in Seattle, how does that affect the efficiency and efficacy in which you could protect and serve the citizens of Seattle? Well, you know, this is one of those philosophical questions that I think there are arguments on both sides, and I don't know the actual impact of the density. You know, does this increase crime or does this bring people together and allow them to be neighborly, keep eyes on each other, and then better interact with the police um, and support them in their investigations to solve crimes? When you have a when you have population density, uh, it certainly would lead to an increase in crimes. The question is whether the increase in crime is disproportionate to the rise in population. And I think what we're, what we're seeing is that there are certain crimes that are uh, dramatically increasing, and they're the property crimes. They're the, uh, the burglaries, typically bicycles being taken out of secure parking garages. They're the car prowls. Uh, they're the, they're the low-level, um, but very intrusive, nonetheless, uh, property crimes. Uh, what we, uh, person or violent crimes have consistently gone down over the last few years, even despite the uh, population increases. So, um, again, I think the, the answer to that is probably pretty nuanced, and it would depend on the, on the type of crime, where you live, and what you're experiencing. And so speaking of the, the where you live part, is adding density to the kind of more downtown or city-feeling areas of Seattle versus some of the residential areas, does that affect your ability to reach and, and respond to these crimes that you see? So typically the east and west precincts, which have the highest population densities, also have the best response times. And that is because our sectors and beats are uh, divided up by population 
to ensure that we have, um, and, and geographic considerations, but to ensure that we have uh, the response times. When you have greater density in west and east, there are greater opportunities for you know, dispatching people out of their sector in, into other sectors, which leads to more rapid response times. I think it's more of a geographic consideration than it is necessarily a population density question. The smaller area served, the faster we're going to be able to get around it. So if you concentrate more people in that smaller area, we're still going to be able to get around faster. Um, there will still be the corresponding rise in, in calls for service as you increase density, though. And so can you just uh, paint a picture of what the east and west precincts are? Uh, it, downtown is, is west and goes up into... Uh, Magnolia and as far south as the ID and then east is is Capitol Hill Central District those areas in those districts more people you're still having fast response times but then which district which precinct is Ballard in then north and which precinct is like maybe the U district and Sandpoint and north okay so that's all together in north are there any plans to open up a new precinct yes uh, we have a construction project that has been planned for many years. Uh, it's, it's not coming quite yet. I think it's a 2019, we'll see, 2019, 2020 in there. But yes, up on 130th and Aurora, there are designs for a new, much larger precinct. And in its design, it was designed to actually hold two commands. In other words, two captains and discrete uh, patrol commands could be dispatched out of there. Um, essentially forming um, more conceptually than in reality a northwest and northeast to increase the number of officers in north and provide better service. Uh, in order to do this, we do need to be able to house them, though. And, and you know, there are certain realities. And in the past, we've uh, had difficulties when we've designed precincts without enough of a future vision. We're designing this precinct for 2038, uh, anticipating significant officer growth and anticipating the needs of the department as a whole. So this will serve as a, as a major resource for better deployment and overall better safety. Can you talk about the number one thing on your mind as it relates to growth in Seattle, population and economic growth, the number one challenge that, that might keep you up at night? What's really driving me right now is, it, it, as, as, as you've learned, I have difficulty with simple answers. Uh, it's really the combination of increasing the workforce so that we have enough officers to efficiently and safely do the job without exhausting them, without overtaxing them. And so that's a hiring and recruiting effort. At the same time, we've really got to improve efficiencies. There are technological solutions, there are operational solutions, but figuring out how to do more with, with the resources that we have is critical. And you know, managing both of those tracks, trying to bring them together seamlessly, and improve overall service, that's, I think that's my primary goal at this time. And do you have any concluding thoughts on population and economic growth and what that means for the police department? I mean, it's a, as you add more people with more interests and um, into a confined area, uh, more things will be happening. I'm sure unique and unanticipated challenges will arise out of that. We'll do our best to continue to partner with our community to find out what it is they want. And as new communities come in, find out what they want in terms of the service and um, values they want their police department to have. Brian, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of the Seattle Growth Podcast. Still to come in this season, 
are many more exciting interviews. An interview with the mayor of Seattle, the associate superintendent of schools, the director of the Washington State Department of Commerce, and many, many more. Next week on the Seattle Growth Podcast, we look at how Seattle's growth affects the region's healthcare system. You'll hear from Dr. Susan Stern, the head of the Division of Emergency Medicine at UW Medicine. There are times when there are no beds available in the city, in which case that patient may do what we call boarding in the emergency department. You'll hear from a nurse. I work in the orthopedics department, which is bones. It's generally hip replacements, knee replacements, and shoulder replacements. So when I got here, my patient population was incredibly homogenous. And I go to work now, and it's a lot of heroin users that are homeless, and they can't get into Harborview because Harborview is so um, overpopulated. From Paul Hayes, executive director of Harborview Medical Center. So at Harborview, we run, I would estimate, somewhere between 95 and 100% occupancy, and usually a sweet spot for where everybody liked to land is around 85%. And you'll hear from Jeff Austin, the Interim Executive Director at UW Medical Center. What we're seeing is a, a dramatic growth in our outpatient services. I hope you join me next week. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and follow me on Twitter, at Prof Schulman, for more updates. As we are just past the halfway point of the 13-episode journey that is the Seattle Growth Podcast, I want to share my gratitude with everyone who has made it possible to have this conversation and to share it with thousands of listeners. I want to thank all the guests who have shared their time and valuable insight with all of you. I also want to thank John Kybe for working some audio magic behind the scenes, Mike Bosey and Ed Cromer for their work on the University of Washington's Foster School of Business blog that has featured each episode of the Seattle Growth Podcast. And I also want to thank Victor Balta and Andrew Kruger for helping to spread the word to the University of Washington community and beyond. And of course, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for listening and for being a part of the conversation about Seattle's future.